Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now that I'm finally done with the book Survival of the Richest, yes, available for pre-order right now, I'm going to try some new things here on Team Human, especially for our supporting members. We're an ad-free, listener-supported show using all of our income to pay for editing, supplying USB headsets for guests, and other production expenses. But it sure enhances everyone's experience to know there's a few hundred supporters among the few hundred thousand or so listeners. And we recognize that contribution by offering our teammates access to my medium pieces behind the paywall, access to our Discord channel, free admission to live events when we do them, and bonus episodes every other week, usually content from the archives like old conversations with Timothy Leary or Terrence McKenna or a book talk or something from the 90s. And I want to try something new for those bonus episodes, some version of a call-in show where people can ask questions or make comments and get some feedback from me. And we'll try a couple of different ways, maybe text questions on Discord or maybe some live audio interaction. So there will be more about that in the Discord this week. Meanwhile, a special thank you to new teammates, including David Penn, Michael Purnell, Sandeep Grewal, Misha Goldberg, and Eric Marshall. Thanks for going to teamhuman.fm and clicking on support. We love you. You're on Team Human, live interactions with human humans. This is not content, but culture, oozing, teeming with life, autonomy, and exquisite moments of intimate solidarity. It's time we value each other with a sonic embrace and get down to the gushy core of love that defines being truly human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, actor, comedian, and one of the creators of the Netflix series Big Mouth, Nick Kroll. 
you could look at ourselves that we are in our adolescence and I think everyone's behavior online and and how we're interacting with each other is very adolescent it's 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 immediately filled with emotion and and frustration and and it's like everybody's constantly talking to their parents now it feels like no you don't understand you know nick will be arguing for the power of comedy in challenging times it's time to intervene on behalf of people i'm douglas rushkoff and we're all on team human i found myself actually bothered by elon musk's tweets this week. For the most part, I've ignored him the same way I ignore most of what happens on that platform and the rest of social media. I sometimes check out my own highly curated list of users for links to interesting articles I might have missed and try not to get fooled into reading the provocations from people looking for attention. But something about the world's richest man making so many misogynist, bullying, and alt-right posts in the name of free speech or owning the libs, it, it got me sad. I mean, this once genius, if mercurial entrepreneur, the guy who wanted to make the whole world, you know, use solar energy instead of burning stuff, he's replaced Donald Trump, our former president, as the Internet's troll-in-chief. I guess, I guess I've just been triggered, as we like to say these days. I feel like I did back in middle school, when the bullies ruled the cafeteria, no matter what the adults said or did. I know Joe Biden is now president, and whatever his flaws, he models a, a compassionate approach to engaging with others and respecting their differences and never stooping to insults. But in a landscape dominated by trolls like Musk and Trump, Biden comes off more like a substitute teacher, just incapable of protecting anyone from abuse on the playground. And whenever I got too upset about being bullied or worse, being unable to protect a friend from being bullied, I remember adults telling me it gets better. Like we tell LGBTQ plus and non-binary kids today, it gets better. Just wait until you grow up. People will be less horrid than they are in seventh grade, and you will find your people. But as I look around at adult America, or Russia, Hungary, Turkey, Brazil, the Philippines, I'm not so sure. It doesn't get better. It gets worse. We have regressed. We are back in the middle school cafeteria being subjected to the hopeless, counterfactual, cynical rantings of the most powerful bullies of our time who pretend they're joking or that their victims are somehow the oppressors. And these bullies are not social outcasts, but the winners of our society's political and economic contests, the world's richest man, the last and maybe next president of the United States. In fact, it's now the kids who are better. The young people with whom I interact, they're quick to correct me if I use a wrong pronoun, but that's because they're trying to treat their peers the way they want to be treated. They may post foolishly compromising pictures of themselves on social media, but they rarely, if ever, attack one of their contemporaries the way our adult trolls or their, their hired bots and thugs do. 
So maybe it does get better, or will. We adults may have lost the ability to tell our kids that our adult lives are better than their tortured adolescence. But by respecting the example they're setting, we can strive to be more like them ourselves. And we can tell them that while it didn't really get better for us, if they hang on to the conviction that their words matter, that freedom of speech is not just a right, but a responsibility, and that people deserve our compassion and respect, maybe, just maybe, they will earn themselves a better and more civil public conversation than we did. 
And uh, I didn't know about your podcast. I knew of your work. And then I listened to the Bo Burnham podcast, who uh, I'm friends with and and really enjoy. And and her and was just like really blown away by you guys chatting. And um, so I figured, why not weasel my way in for one? Oh, well, you don't have to weasel, but yeah. but no, it's cool because I think a lot of people don't realize what kind of thought goes into the work that comedians and media makers do. Yes, you know, it's like I I know when I talk to my daughter about stuff she's like oh i just want to make a youtube show and get famous mm-hmm. as if you just spiel and mm-hmm. it just happens and mm-hmm. it doesn't just happen i mean so you were you were kind of aware of the the some of the structure and function of media before you started doing this i mean you were you were taking some media studies and stuff in college yeah and i was i was reading your books and i i mean i remember reading coercion and hmm. and i was a history major i went to georgetown and a art and spanish minor but what i kept finding myself being drawn to was more media studies american studies stuff and i just wasn't didn't have my shit together wasn't smart enough at the time to sort of just be like that's what i'm going to do that's what my major's going to be but i i got really sort of fascinated with it and this was when like brill's content was uh-huh. the magazine and adbusters and it right. was all sort of like it was, you know, especially me in college being like, you don't know what they're doing to us, you know. Yeah. But I really believed it and still do. And it really sparked my interest so that when I moved to New York to start doing comedy, making content, for lack of a better term, I was always aware and fascinated by the sort of machinations of how and what we're doing and why. Yeah. I mean, I always go back and forth on whether media is doing a good thing or a bad thing i know it's mm-hmm. kind of simplistic but you know is it so or is the kind of whatever we call it the political economy of media and the culture industry so oppressive that it almost doesn't matter what message you do like i think back to um when uh, matt graining was mm-hmm. starting the simpsons mm-hmm. on fox mm-hmm. he got all freaked out about it oh should i be doing something like this because mm. he was a weird right i remember having those comics as a kid in my house life in hell and all those comics and it was and it's so kind of anarchic that those comics and then to become like the <laughs> the focal point of like a cornerstone of an american money-making thing for news corp right must have been a bizarre turn of events for a guy like that right because i remember gary panter who did used to do the art on like Pee Wee herman stuff mm-hmm. was a good friend of matt graining and he wrote this manifesto really for matt graining saying it's okay because um, you're going to be in the belly of the beast mm-hmm. and do whatever you can or do whatever you have to to get your show out there. Yeah. And I wonder if he looks later, though, and think, well, shoot, my show funded Fox News. Yeah. And, uh, but, it's, but simultaneously, I look at that show and the cultural impact that it had in on a broad scale, but also on individuals like me and really encouraged me to get want to get into media and, and to make things that were socially, politically relevant just as an artist to make something that feels like oh wow they've told these very funny stories that are really heartfelt and about family and human emotion that i think are incredibly useful so not only were the stories that they told important but i think the influence that the simpsons had on people like me and and my whole generation um to make go make stuff that feels like it's talking about the human condition right or exposing something more real than the you know, veneer of the 60s, 70s shows we kind of grew up with. Sure. It's uh, it's a real slippery slope of how and what 
why it all sort of comes together the way it does. But that's also maybe that's part of it is like uh, th- there's some sort of duality that like The Simpsons and and shows that are have these really like really kind of getting into this family and and all these dynamics at play that 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 can't really exist without like you know shitty reality shows on the other side right you know i mean when you get to do i guess this is kind of a almost a business industry question but after you've done you know a broadway show Mm -hmm. a movie and a series when you want to do something like big mouth is it like netflix people coming to you and saying what do you want to do just want to do something or do you have to like go back and Mm-hmm. figure out a pitch and beg and we did a bunch of things but we we went in guns loaded which was here's this show about me and andrew here's the next show i nick kroll want to do i want to do it with my friend andrew who's been a writer family guy here is what these characters look like here are the cast we hope to assemble which was all of my friends like jason manzukas and jenny slade and jesse klein and um, John Mulaney and 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 all these other people that I had assembled loosely who had you know loosely agreed. We drew a little pencil test, like a two minute sort of pencil test of what the characters would look like and sound uh-huh. like. And then we had a shoebox filled with pictures of Andrew and I from school, from the trip I took with his parents to China with him when we were in seventh grade, where we you know, we were in front of like the, you know, Forbidden City and all Andrew and I wanted to do was wrestle, uh, not even go inside or, you know, and, and it, it became, it was like, we don't have a script, but we have a lifetime of uh, actual stories that we want to tell and, and specifically about this period of time. Uh, and Netflix was very excited about it. And they were at that point, they had BoJack, uh, I think they had F is for family. They were excited about getting further into adult animation. And it seemed like our show was kind of the kind of thing that they wanted to do, which was what's a sort of a, a knowable format, like a family, you know, coming of age uh, animated show. And how can we push that envelope to its absolute limit with kids masturbating, getting their periods, being horny, and getting into stuff that seemed largely, you know, in ways, uncharted territories. Well, the thing that's, that's, I guess, dramaturgically unique about this show, I mean, you do the thing that they always tell you to do, that everyone since, you know, whatever, Lalos Egri in the Art of Dramatic Writing was saying, was personify yeah. the, the emotions. Yes. And it's like, okay, what if we personify masturbation as a monster? What if we personify hormones? What yes. if we... So now you have... The, the, for people who haven't watched the show, each character basically has a personification, friendly monster alter ego that follows them around, and they're the only one who can see it and talk to it. And it's either encouraging them to masturbate or not masturbate, or to to let a certain hormone rage through their body or not, yeah. or 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 the, their pillow even, yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, which I won't even go into on family on family. Uh, uh, family podcast podcast here <laughs> but uh, just imagine what a young man would do with his pillow in certain <laughs> certain worlds the pillow really shows up in the second season yes. actually <laughs> but well, we you know all of that stuff so when andrew when we early early start talking about the show andrew was talking to mark and jen mark and jen have a teenage son around this age and they were sort of trying to figure out like what is that thing that starts to talk to kids at that age? And, and, and Andrew's like, we should have some sort of like hormone monster. And Mark was like, 
that's it. It should be the hormone monster. They then called me and they were like, what about a hormone monster? And then I just immediately was like, touch yourself, Andrew. <laughs> and, and it became that thing. It was that, that sort of, to me, seductive id, you know, that seductive quality that pushes you to, to do the things you do, and especially at that age when it really holds a grip on you. Um, and so each of the characters have some version of that, or in the case of my character, Nick, who is such a late bloomer, season two is really about him trying to find his hormone monster, that it wasn't a natural, all of a sudden occurrence like it was for Andrew, that for me it was a m much slower, halting confusing process it wasn't black and white right. like you're horny you're coming right now for me it was like i see everyone around me going through puberty i'm aware of what's happening to others because my parents are talking to me about this and i'm a observer of what's going on and i'm waiting for that to happen to me and it, and it isn't and right. then it slowly starts happening but it's not exactly like getting hit over the head with a ton of bricks and a lot of the show is about what's better is there neither ways i think is particularly a pleasant experience getting hit right. over the head where you have no control and andrew is struggling through the entire series of can i be a good guy and be horny too like this is not a bad kid but this is a kid filled with he wants to masturbate to his uh best friend's sister's bathing suit you know in the pool house when she, you know she's laid it out to dry that's the f in the third episode of season two and he starts masturbating to her bathing suit and she walks in on him and it's at that point that we bring in another character in season two that plays a really big part of the series throughout the season which is the shame wizard right which is again not a physical manifestation like what we would say the hormone monster is but is a I guess a, I don't know what it is, whether we go back and forth, whether it's like a societal construct that is brought in to help help us monitor those behaviors, those things that the like hormones, hormone monsters that drive us to be filled with rage, to be filled with lust, that this shame wizard comes in and haunts us to, to begin to regulate those um, really base desires that uh, you know, over time, society starts to tell us, like, you need to curb this. You need to curb masturbating. You need to right. curb sex. You need to curb um, your desire to, to beat the shit out of someone. Um, but that shame wizard can become so much more powerful than just curbing you to do bad things. It starts to make you feel terrible about everything you're doing and it infects every element of your decision making and, and, and is such a formative thing. And I think a lot of people who have feel shame, so much of that can be traced back to this very formative time in their lives. It's interesting that puberty is a really ripe moment. Yeah. Um, not just personally for us, but almost collectively. You know, when I look at Trump, I, I see in some ways, mm -hmm. I mean, and some people would say I'm doing him a favor by saying it, but a, a, a man in, in this sort of perpetual puberty state. Yes. And that's why I'm interested in it as a, a reflection of our cultural adolescence, mm -hmm. that it feels mm. like right now we're waking up, oh, wait a minute, we're part of a big world. What we do matters, mm -hmm. you know, and some people are afraid to even, even the cultural intimacy of like, oh, you know, uh, uh, women have feelings too yeah. you know black people want to want social justice it's almost like this 12 13 year old nation sort of going Whoa. yeah no that's incredibly i think that's very true i mean it's crazy to think our 
let's say America's 200 and you know 50 years old as a nation or whatever is that what where where are we at a little over yeah Around there, 250 yeah. years yeah. like from the bicentennial or whatever as as I go yeah from 76, 76. yeah it's about <laughs> almost 250 years old 240 years old so um I think it is you could look at ourselves that we are in our adolescence and I think everyone's behavior online and and how we're interacting with each other is very adolescent it's 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 immediately filled with emotion and and frustration and and it's like everybody's constantly talking to their parents now it feels like no you don't understand you know um and i do think it is and the the realization as you're saying that there are other people out there that the world isn't just your little core family that you're all of a sudden out in the world and you have to deal with you know different people of different cultures of sexual orientation things like that and you're you're creating your identity you're trying to figure out who you are and how you navigate that space and i do think that the country and and the world at large are are like that and i think especially now with how interconnected everybody is i think that's it's around this age 13 that your world starts to expand much bigger than your family and your elementary school it becomes you know your sports teams your you know and then now obviously just the with the amount of interconnectedness and social media and stuff it's it's really i think it's it's sort of expands things on a crazy level because i know you did you know i know you majored in history at georgetown Mm -hmm. i mean which in itself would be like enough to get in the state department probably you know what i mean i think of it as like you know doing doing history at georgetown was like you know i did english at princeton Mm -hmm. i feel like okay that's like where are you gonna do it yes so as someone who did history in Georgetown and you you look at the sweep of history, I mean, does it does it feel I mean, I always analyze it from a media side that, OK, we got the Internet and all of a sudden that foisted this whole new era of 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 connectivity and cultural intimacy on us that we weren't used to or ready for mm-hmm. people like me said oh this is great you know we're gonna get the Gaia hypothesis and we're mm-hmm. all gonna connect mm-hmm. and the global brain and we're all gonna hippie love you know one big rave mm-hmm. but then there are these cultures or or almost fundamentalist cultures that kind of push against it that it seems like almost they're like back in almost a jacobean age or some really primitive uh, or or uh, essential understanding of the nation state mm-hmm. and our boundaries and all i mean do you feel like we're we're moving towards the kind of are, are we passing through our national puberty or are we going back you know what i mean putting all the boundaries and afraid of this yeah it's a big question you know as a history major i think the the easiest thing it, it's such a stock answer but it does feel like history repeats itself so like you know, you look at 100 years ago in 1914, 1915, you see the First World War where all of these, it felt like all of these, which is what the last few years have felt like to me, these like isolationist sort of totalitarian yeah. uh, regimes that everyone's sort of folding in upon itself and then it explodes on each other. So it feels to me something like that. Like, I'm, I'm like, oh, I wonder, you know, wh- like, wh- how is this going to, so is it like, is this our puberty or are we just going through the pattern of, of sort of, you know, enveloping ourselves in our own shit, then deciding that, no, we got to go out to the world and, and, and we're, we're at, at war, we, you know, and is, is there something like that or is it, or no, are we propelling forward? Is this like, is it not a loop? Are we, are we just propelling forward towards the next thing? Like, 
puberty and adolescence are we evolving into like is is the positive are we going to pass through our adolescence and then get into our 20s and or go to college and all become right socialists <laughs> right because you know some people when they when they go through puberty or even later you know high school and college they become part of boys clubs and secret fraternities mm -hmm. and you know basically the Kavanaugh yeah pack. I was going to say <laughs> yeah you go become the Supreme you know, Court Justice you become some kind of you know insular jock we're the boys those are the girls yeah. you know I, I can understand that impulse because cultural intimacy is scary yeah I th it's so I think it is so scary I mean I do think like before Trump was elected I sort of described what I thought was happening which was that to me Trump was like you know when a body dies it lets out one last like fart shit uh -huh. I thought that's what Trump was for older white men. That this was the last sort of like, like the body is just going to release this like fart shit and then it would be dead. Right. And in some ways it's the original constitutional fart. You know, yes. these are the founding fathers, slave owners. Yes. And it's, so it's in there. Yeah. Oh, it's deeply in there. <laughs> and now we're saying, and now we've realized, oh no, it's not, it's more of a shart. It's just like we just <laughs> thought we were going to fart and the shit came out and you got to walk around the rest of the day right. with a stingy butt. Yeah. And 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 that's what it feels like. But I do think like when I look at and I do believe, I'm I'm curious I'm less curious about Kavanaugh and 53-year-old men like Kavanaugh who are like, you know, I like beer boy the boys in the, you know, the beer and calendars versus like what are the 23-year-old versions of Kavanaugh now? Are those guys the same as Kavanaugh. Do they have the same level of, um, oh, woe is me. Maybe maybe they do in that they know that it was better for that guy, Brett Kavanaugh, 30 years ago than it is for them right now. Or, and are they somewhat more understanding of what is going on that we have to share, that they have to share the spoils now? Right. I mean, they have it's to share it with women. They have to share yeah. it with minorities, and 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 I do because I do believe at some point, like the future cultures, there will be still like those white men who are like, you don't take away what was ours, but I think that number is going to be smaller and smaller generationally. I would. Oh, it it kind of has to be. But it's interesting that Kavanaugh is sort of like. Animal House era, you're kind of more MTV Spring Break yeah. era, yeah. and then the kids today, I don't know what the sort of white male squishing beer cans on the head culture is, but it is a more, it is a more YouTube-y, and, and, I mean, in the good way, it's a more, it is a more politically correct. Yeah, it is a more, I think even if it's, they understand that it's just on paper, and there will be those. I mean, if they're watching Joe Rogan or something, yeah. if that's... I mean, I like Joe. If that's as bad as white male, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, Joe might not have the same opinions at all times as like a two liberal Jews sitting in an, <laughs> uh, in an, uh, you know, in the Flatiron District in New York City. But he is a thoughtful guy who is exploring and both the self and big cultural ideas. Right. If those guys. I think if the guys, if like a 23-year-old white dude who's in the UFC, into UFC, is listening to, I'd much rather yeah. have him listening to Joe Rogan than 
uh, thirty years ago, Brett Kavanaugh or or Andrew Dice Clay, thirty years ago, right? Because I think there is, of course, room for all these different versions of what. Because it's not like you know, I'm like I believe what I believe is right, but it's not like I'm like maybe I'm maybe I'm over the line on certain things. Whatever it is, I do think that that I hope and believe we're heading that way. But I do think there is like you look at Charlottesville a year ago. It's like those were young men. You know, uh, there were young men who were marching for the alt-right. That the, that community is not going away entirely, but I do think it's a smaller group. I think it's a smaller group of men who have decided, I'm going to wear khakis and carry a tiki torch to, sh- to hold on to my, my rights as a white man. I think that's much smaller than 30 years ago, where it was just like a ton of the majority of white men might be like slightly racist and and you know homophobic and right. and 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 generally misogynistic. I mean, and not that it's the entire problem, because I know there's a there's a socio political giant stuff and race and but part of the problem can be traced back to the moment that Big Mouth is about. Do you know what I mean? They mm-hmm. haven't been able to integrate that their alter ego monster person. Yes. Yes, there's a part of you that just would just just, just get inside that. I want to fuck that thing. Exactly. I want to fight that fucking thing. That part. And if you don't figure out what that is, I mean, Trump's is still talking to him the way it talks to a 13 year old, yes. you know? Yeah. I mean, funny, I have a chapter in the in the the team human book, this manifesto that comes out in January. I'll give you yeah. I'll give you one. I got a whole chapter on shame. Yeah. And you know, I start with the idea that shame was is imposed on us. That that shame is, is kind of negative, that it's imposed on us by the church to make sex shameful, mm-hmm. or you know, and that and it's used as a way of controlling people. Yes. I mean, there's ways, I guess there's ways to bring it in. That work, have you no shame? Have you no shame, sir? Yeah. You know, it's go like- back and watch, you know, <laughs> I, I was going to say as a history major, and then I was about to go go back and watch Game of Thrones, you know, that that period of time in history. <laughs> well, it is like a period. It is. That's the thing about, about the way reality TV and fictional TV have kind of crossed over. Mm-hmm. It's like Game of Thrones is in some ways, even though there's magic, it is a lesson in sort of medieval mm-hmm. values, pre-national understandings. But I also was like thinking about the Princess Bride. You know, there's the shame scenes in, in Game of Thrones, but then in the Princess Bride, when Princess Buttercup is going to marry Humperdinck and not stay alive for her true, not stick around for her true love because she thinks she's died, and that woman starts boo boo <laughs> the Queen of Refuse, you know, she sort of goes off on him on her on, on Robin Wright, um, and it is I do think there is that sort of it's shame is this unseeing eye. It's like sometimes it is of the view of what we assume other people are seeing us as and. And, and I think sometimes it governs us and sometimes it's in, integrated into us in a way, in a healthy way, which is, you know, on the show, Andrew is dealing with, he goes first to the rabbi, when he first gets uh, sort of haunted by the shame wizard, he goes to a rabbi and the rabbi, all he can do is talk to him about the parking spot issues that he's having in front of the synagogue. And then he goes to, you know, he's like, if you want to talk about shame, go to the Catholic church. They do, they do shame. Yeah, yeah, they do shame. And then he goes to the Catholic church and the church guy's like, oh, you're Jewish. You're here for free advice. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you want to have sex with boys. And he's like, I don't want to have sex with boys. I have sex with grown women. And here are pictures of them. You know, it's this very weird thing. It, basically, he Andrew goes to both the Jews and the Catholics hoping to get some respite from shame. 
and neither of them give it to him. And because we had been reading, I wish we had had your book, but when we were forming it, but we had been uh, listening to and and reading the work of Brene Brown mm-hmm. um, and her TED talk about shame and and the petri dish of that she talks about of, of silence and secrecy and and holding those things into yourself when you um, throughout the season the kids only get to begin to defeat shame once they start talking to each other about what they're going through right I mean and that's the whole thing I mean in in the shame I get all all. Uh, uh, into you know almost Marxist in my whole shame section there, but the idea that we're not supposed we we're ashamed of money. We're not supposed to talk about how much money we make. Mm-hmm. And when you look at well, what's the function of that? It's so that one worker isn't comparing what he makes with the other worker, yeah. and then they form solidarity. You want the boss wants everyone thinking that they're the only one. It's a little bit like a child molester. Oh, don't yeah. I'm going to give you an extra fifty cents an hour, but don't tell anybody right, else. Right. So right. now you're in cahoots with that person. Once you start talking with everybody else, once you're no longer, once money is no longer, and wow, why are people's salaries, why is it considered discreet not to tell anybody what you make? Yeah. You know, it's for power. It's divide and conquer and all of it. Yes. And I think we have tried to figure out how, how these kids, if you can teach kids to sort of, and it's really a larger thing within the show which is the feeling of being going through puberty feels like i think people feel incredibly alone whenever i think about my own puberty experience or whenever i talk to people i think it feels like these things are happening to me and 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 i they're only happening to me nobody else knows what it feels like which is maybe at times could be slightly egotistical, like my headaches are worse than everybody else's. But I think the truth is it more just you feel alone. And in making this show, I think our our desire and effort was to say you're not alone. Everybody, literally every person goes through this experience. Everybody has the experience of of uh, this emotional roller coaster of these things. And and if you can tell people that everybody, if kids watch the show and see that everybody's going through this, everybody has the desires that it takes some of the power away from the feelings of shame and the feelings of of inadequacy or the feelings of out of controlness that dominate us at that age and then lead to patterns of behavior that might not be healthy for the rest of our lives right i mean like the, the thing that i'm i'm most concerned about is uh them being part of a culture industry rather than a culture, mm-hmm. you know, and how quickly they get wrapped up in the metrics of Facebook yeah. or Instagram and the numbers. Yeah. And they're the, the idea that the, uh, this, this real uh, obsession with the quantity of likes. And I understand that matters in real business. What are your ratings? Mm-hmm. How are you mm-hmm. doing? Mm-hmm. But for that kind of metric to be r- riding over them First, when they're super young, creative people, you don't get weird stuff yeah. if you're worried about numbers. Yeah. And if you're worried about numbers when you're 12, 13 years old, yeah. then that's already that's already trained in there. And I feel like it leads to this this American Idol culture that we're in now, yeah. where they equate you know their clicking and their voting with democracy mm-hmm. and popularity with with success. Yeah, I mean, I it's I. I you know, as a fully grown man, I have those feelings of like, 
I don't have enough likes, that photo I posted didn't get enough in, you know, there's not enough views of this. I'm only so popular in a certain <laughs> realm and, and, and I can and only it's imagine important for people hearing that to know that, I mean, because from the outside, we're like, oh, he's made it. It's done. Yeah. It's Broadway, TV, movies. But that from the inside, these these forces still impact you on a daily oh, basis on such a deep, constant level, uh, at least for me. And I think for a lot of people, the feeling that um, I'm and I mean, interesting, like Kanye West has gotten back online in the last couple of weeks and is trying to encourage Twitter and stuff to get rid of the likes and that it's based on this old modeling and it's not healthy for people which is very funny because i feel like that's coming purely from a place of insecurity on his part where like 10 years ago he was just like everybody was playing his music and he knew he was the most popular musician right but now one because i think i mean he's gone off the rails in a lot of ways but two i think he's probably seeing a video come out or a, a post come out and seeing that you know 200,000 people like it for kanye that's nothing when he sees some other artists like drake put out something and drake puts a photo up and a million people like right. it and i think he's now saying we shouldn't have these <laughs> metrics on right. there and it's, it's all, he's it, he's the yeah. only one he's the only one who's sort of crazy and brave enough to say look let's get rid of this because on some level he's right but i think it's coming from a deeply insecure place of how bad it makes him feel that he's doing compare and despair and finding out that he doesn't have it and i i feel that tremendously and i can't imagine what kids feel like in that in that space right i mean and it's also just how how divorced are we from our our, our, our healthy hormone monsters when we're in those spaces yes. because all of the, the, the organic mechanisms that we use to establish rapport, be scared of a girl or mm. attracted to a girl, all those things are, are disabled. Yeah. No, it's a very different system of cues and, and vocabulary language that gets used for courting and stuff like that. And, and what that leads to, and we've sort of been, continuing to talk to more sex educators and talking to kids themselves about like how does it work for you what is like do you get into relationships are you is it purely like a what they would call like a hookup culture which i don't think is necessarily means like every all these kids are having sex with each other right. but it just means that they're not like getting into relationships at in middle and high school they're not having the same versions of of relationships that we experience or didn't experience you know at, the, at that age and and what that means how about the what they form for the rest of their lives do they look for the meaningful singular partner for you know a monogamous relationship for the rest of their lives or do they see it as a more you know whether there will be more polyamory things like that and and i think in certain regards i'm like well maybe some of that's not the worst thing in the world i can't even imagine i mean what it would be like to like start it in from junior high school age in a polyamorous mm -hmm. society mm -hmm. where everybody's just like, oh, just do what you want, everybody. It's yeah. all good. And there's endless options. Yeah. there's a, That's the, the tricky, I think that's a really tricky thing for kids and, and maybe not 13, but 15 and up or whatever it is that you could be in a relationship, but you could also just jump online and see that there's this beautiful person who is posting a picture who then is reaching out to you and where there's dating apps to say, you know, you like this person, but also there's five other other people in in within a three block radius that you've connected with so when do you ever feel settled when do you ever feel like i found the person that i'm supposed to be with but then i also look at kids you know people who are under 30 have grown up with this their entire lives and they're still getting married they're still getting in relationships they're you know right. so like maybe there is hope that like certain underlying human principles will continue to 
over supersede the hyper connectivity that we feel right i mean and i guess we still don't even really know if like marriage and monogamous coupling is that the true expression of the hormone monsters or is that the expression of of shame right yeah (laughs) or some combination yeah it's probably some combination (laughs) i mean we have a thing in the show this is separate but we have a thing in the show where andrew's being haunted by the shame wizard and he some girl starts to tell him what a piece of shit he is and we see what i want to tell like the origin story of a possible sort of bdsm relationship where he you see a kid being told like you piece of shit you know (sighs) and that he gets turned on by that yeah yeah and and he starts to fetishize it and and like is this a kid that 15 years from now is going to have his balls being stomped on by high heels (laughs) and it was like oh this is the origin of that story and I'm like, you know, again, I believe that these things that we're going through that at that age are creating the patterns for the rest of our lives for both good and bad relationships. And, you know, and but I also think that it's never too late to try to write those things that don't feel wrong or don't feel good to us. Um, and I think you can it's never too late. It's never too late to sort of get to come to peace with your hormone monster or to come to peace with your shame wizard. That's the hope. I know. And for us, not just as individuals, but culturally as a culture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being on team human. Thanks for having me. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Nick Kroll, whose show Big Mouth is going into its seventh season soon on Netflix. But you can catch the first six if you haven't already. Team Human is produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 